Welcome back to the non-standard 14er podcast, a podcast that talks about everything the root description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. We're on Zoom again, and we're welcoming father and two sons who just recently wrote a book, uh, Surviving the Colorado 14ers, about their 24-year journey crossing time zones, uh, climbing 14ers, and writing a book about it. We have first David Witte joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having us. We have Mark Witte. Good to be with you guys tonight. And we have the father, Denny Witte. Hi, everybody. And also joining the podcast is Tay Jack. Hello, hello. Jacer Jack. Howdy. And we got the exiled Michigander joining us from Salt Lake City. Good to be here. It's nice to have faces to voices. I've listened to most of the episodes and I've enjoyed y'all's conversations. Oh, awesome. oh, great. Nice. Good to have you guys on. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Normally we do this in person, but uh, COVID had other plans, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, I'm in Michigan, so that would have <laughs> I would have been out of luck anyways. <laughs> and Dennis, are you in Buena Vista? Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at Mount Princeton, Mount Harvard, Mount Columbia, Mount Yale. Take your pick. So (laughs) That's perfect. I live along the North Cottonwood Pass Road, so I'm literally four miles from the Harvard-Columbia Trailhead, so I can get back there really fast. Do they have all that paved yet, all the way up? No, it's actually getting worse. There's a a big gully through the thing now where a lot of two, two-wheel drivers are getting hung up. So. No kidding. Wow. And then, David, where are you at? I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. All right. So all a bunch of flatlanders. So do you guys uh, get out and climb much anymore, or now that you're out of state, do you get out to Colorado? We were just out there, what, a, about two weeks ago for a little over a week, and we, we did go up Harvard while we were out there, and and then the monsoon kind of shut down all of our other plans. So we did some little hikes, and but we did get up Harvard again while we're out there. So awesome. usually once a year, we get a couple of days to go out and have some fun. Awesome. Not a bad base camp to have uh, Dad's house right there at the base of all those. That yeah. does help. Yeah. He makes different. us jealous by living there, but it does it does help. That's awesome. I do I do several a year. I just did Columbia on the new CFI trail, uh, July 1. Very, very nice. Oh, it's um, a big difference, yeah. Well, of course, and I do a lot of backcountry stuff, uh, Colorado trail hiking, continental divide hiking, um, backcountry fishing, backcountry snowshoeing. In the wintertime, I tromp around uh, up in the foothills west of me quite a bit, so it's a lot of fun. Have you guys been out this summer to Henny Peaks? These guys have been dominating. Yeah, trying to. We did. I did Harvard and Columbia with them earlier in the season, and we skied Democrat. But then they done. Oh, did you guys do Capital? I thought I saw a trip report on the dot com. Was that? Yeah. Yeah. Good eye. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. We did Capital. How was that? A few weeks ago. Oh, it was. It was actually a pleasant surprise. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we're trying to make it a big August and September and get as many as we can. And uh, Chris and Patrick are trying to check off the centennial. So we're trying to have it be a mutually agreeable thing where I get a 14er and maybe they get a centennial and just trips in as we can. So. Excellent. Yeah. I think we're all curious uh, how you guys got into doing a podcast. Driving late at night on 285, four in the morning and (laughs) telling the same stories to each other. We realized if we had a third person that hadn't heard the story, it would be better because we can just tell the same stories over and over. <laughs> well, we can drive Kenosha Pass, Fremont Pass, and Independence Pass with our eyes closed. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I know. I, I've been into podcasts lately. When I was searching for good ones to listen to, I was glad to see someone was doing a 14ers podcast. That was, that was nice to – a good find. I was glad That's I caught awesome. you guys. Well, yeah. we, we found that it was kind of a niche that hadn't been explored. Like we were so many times we'd sit around and compare these peaks and say, okay, what's Maroon Peak like compared to Capitol? And what's this one like compared to this one? And do you think the objective danger is higher on this one versus, you know, Little Bear? So we're like, why don't we just sit down and start recording it on an iPhone? And then one thing led to another and Chris got a nice microphone and some soundproofing and here we are. So yeah, sort of like you evolved with 14er gear. As you could do the 14ers when you 
doing bad socks and you, you go to micro spikes and you go to ice axes and you go to Gore-Tex and you go to helmets. You've moved yeah. from like this $20 microphone from Amazon. <laughs> some pretty good. Of course you yeah. can't see we're surrounded by pillows. They're just, they're just <laughs> pillows. Yeah, it's still a little amateur. Yeah. We're working it out. Yeah. I'm going to get a studio sooner, sooner or later, <laughs> but we're not there yet. Yeah. So it's uh yeah. And it started kind of as like a, a verbal trip report where we do a peak and we're still going to do that until we run out of peaks and then maybe move on to the centennials. But we started to get, as you guys have heard, you know, different guests on and folks like yourself that, um, really have interesting input and great stories. And so we found that that's just as good of a format as us same three people sitting around talking about peaks, get some interesting people on and hear their stories. So we're really excited to have you guys on and hear a little bit about your journey and about your book and um, kind of how it sounds like it brought you guys together as father and son. And uh, it's, it's uh, a pretty cool thing. So thanks for joining us guys. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So who's, who's the better hiker and who's the better writer? <laughs> David's the better writer. There's no doubt about that. We, we all did our part in helping to write, and he uh, he pretty much corrected everything I wrote. So I I'm not the writer. <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm a university professor. You push my start button, and I just talk for 55 minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> you need a good editor. That's the hard part. Editing is the worst. Writing's easy. The editing that that's where take somebody special. So at what, so at what point in your journey as, as father and sons, did you guys realize this was going to be a book? What was that conversation like? That's a, that's a good question. Um, we really had no intentions of a book at all throughout all 54 climbs. Um, that really didn't come until the end when I saw you, you've got my camp hail book. That one, uh, was published first. And so I said, you know what, now I know how to publish a book. And so we kind of thought, talked a little bit about, um, you know, the same thing that you guys did with the podcast. It was, we got these great stories. We, we tell them to each other all the time. <laughs> and we said, you know what, for our family's sake, why don't we record some of these stories in a book format? And then the secondary thing was also to, you know, just throw some advice out there. Uh, you know, we're not experts, we're not great climbers, but at the same time, you know, we had 24 years of experience on 14ers, and I think that gave us a little bit of perspective that we'd like to share with the community, and so that was kind of what culminated in, hey, let's write a book, um, and then we got motivated to finish it, because uh, when dad was retiring, we gave him the first uh, prototype copy of the book at his retirement ceremony. Oh, how neat. Uh, it was a it was a fantastic thing because we were kind of dragging getting the book done and when he started talking about retiring mark and i said let's get this thing done and we'll put it out there and how long did it take to write it oh what do you think mark you think we wrote for it was off and on for a year or two and we did drag a lot during the process <laughs> but off and on for a year or two and then you know a lot of editing just to try to do our best to make it sound good. But the whole process is very therapeutic just to go through all your memories, go through that process of putting it to paper. And, and, you know, at the end we thought at least we're capturing our memories. And even if we sell like 10 copies total, we've got it for us. And if it helps someone else out all the better. So great to have that time to reflect on the experience. That's really cool. I'm curious just how you, how you, the three of you started, you know, how old you were you when you started doing 14ers together? Had you hiked before 14ers? How did it, how did the whole process start out? Yeah, I got started with my brother in uh, 1998. And he 88, lived, 88, 88. What am yeah. I doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 88. And he lived in Loveland and we we did he he got me started he and i did albert together and i talk about that in chapter one and then right after that the next year 1990 we did uh De so you know up at kite lake and did those three and i got pretty sick uh, but i still convinced myself it was uh, something i wanted to do <laughs> but the the real watershed moment was in 91 when uh, my brother and I were like okay we're gonna do some more and 
and we looked at these two young boys who were 10 years old and eight years old. And um, my brother Bob had younger daughters, and so they weren't really a, a candidate. But uh, my two boys, eight and 10, we looked over at them and like, boy, I don't know, do, you know, do we dare drag an eight and a 10-year-old up a, a peak? And it, it turned out to be quandary. And of course, they, Mark and David smoked Bob and I. I mean, they, they just scampered on up the, you know, the East Ridge route. And Bob and I were gasping and wheezing the whole way. And so it, that was the, the, the defining moment to really get us going. And the boys got hooked on it. So uh, that's 1991. That's, that's a long time ago. And then throughout that process, uh, did you guys know from the start that you were going to finish all of them? Or at what point did you decide, hey, we should finish all of the 54 together? I don't think we figured we'd be doing them all till maybe halfway in. I, I think, you know, the first couple years in the 90s, we were doing them, we'd be doing like two a year because we're driving out from Chicago and and uh, but when we got into the mid 2000s, we were start. We did a couple of the hard ones like Pyramid and Little Bear, and we like we finally realized, hey, we're, we're like in the 20s. We've got some done. This is doable. And then then we started trying to crank out like four or five a year and make some progress. So I don't think we started thinking we'd do them all. Although David and I did have those like Breckenridge T-shirts with the little check boxes on them. Yes, but. <laughs> Yeah, we never realistically thought we'd be able to do them all. Because some of them, like, after doing Quandary, you think, my goodness, how do you do those, like, class four double diamond peaks? But it built over time. We thought, well, maybe this is doable. And, and we were having fun, so it's like, why would you quit? So we kept going. I think in the book, I identified 2008 as sort of a year where we said, you know what, if we're going to do all these, we need to start doing them each summer. Because, you know, with our jobs and whatnot, you got, you got a week out in Colorado that you can hike. And so uh, I think Sean probably understands that traveling. And uh, so we said, look, let's, let's start planning four to six of these every summer. And, you know, dad's not getting any younger. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, be on, let's be honest. We, we, had, we had honest conversations where... Dad, you know, you're in the mid-50s, and we're just, we're just not sure how long you're going to be able to keep doing this. So we think we need to pick up the pace. And uh, while you're at it, Dad, please stay in shape so you can keep up with us. So. <laughs> wow. It's a tall order. The brutal honesty of sons. That's amazing. Yeah, I think people who, who can finish while living out of state, that is so much more impressive to me. You know, because when you're living in Colorado, it's like, yeah, you know, there's still long drives. But when you're coming from, you know, Texas or Kansas or, you know, some of these places, it's like you're exhausted before you even set foot uh, at base camp. So that's, you know, hats off to you for doing that. It's amazing. You're exactly right. And in my mid-50s, I started to cheat a little bit. So uh, I would come out, literally come out a week early and spend time with at my brother's cabin up in Trout Creek Pass and things like that and and work on acclimation because as you get older the acclimation becomes a little slower and uh, the fitness uh, is just not like what it used to be so yeah I did the boys Mark and Dave they were still coming out the night before and let's go hike the next day but Which we I don't recommend. I, yeah, I was always. <laughs> I was sneaking in some acclimation in my fifties. Yeah. Well, I think that's clever. And did you guys, uh, David and Mark, did you guys do any specific training coming from out of state to to hike the peaks? Not in the early years. Uh, I, I think we probably just lived off youth as long as we could. And uh, <laughs> I remember in college or getting out of college, I. A month before, I'd be like, yeah, I should start running or doing something. And, <laughs> and then I was still moderate shape. And in my 30s, though, I've picked up running a lot. So now I feel like I'm in shape year round, or I, I try to be. And, and that does help with acclimating. But I think for a lot of the years, it was just kind of living off your youth and just hoping you're still in shape when you get out there. Totally. Uh, Mark, 
Mark and I in, in the, uh, what, 2010 to 2015, we're both marathon runners. So we definitely, you know, kept in shape before coming out to Colorado. Uh, but like I said, you know, we don't even, we don't recommend that flying in stuff the night before because <laughs> we went out to uh, the Wilson group. Uh, I don't know what, what year was that, Mark? Do you happen to know? I ended up getting to the Rock of Asia's saddle um, back probably within 12 hours of landing from the plane. And it was tough. I mean, we, we knocked him out in two days, but it really took a toll. Uh, you, you, just, you just can't – even fitness cannot replace uh, acclimating. It's, it's just something – you know, it helps to be fit, but, man, the, having a good night or two at least before you do a 14er is, is a help. So it's not very often that we get to talk to people that have bit off a good chunk of the 14ers in the 90s. And I know having climbed 14ers <laughs> in the 90s myself, it is vastly different now than what it was 25 years ago. Um, you didn't have 14ers.com. At best, you had Roach's first or second edition. Um, can you guys speak a little bit to what that was like for you in the 90s versus how it is now? Yeah, thank you, Bill Middlebrook, of course. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, yeah, the standard – back when we were getting started was uh, Lampert and Roach and I think I've still got it? Lampert here. That, that's the original there. <laughs> the collectors yeah. We got item. Lampert still. <laughs> and actually rather poor, you know, weather availability. So we would copy pages out of Lampert's book or Roach's book, stick them in our backpack and, uh, I'll take a glance at the weather forecast, but never really knowing what it was going to be like. And, of course, there was no beta at that time, you know, a way of sharing uh, what was going on and what the, the route conditions were or the trailhead conditions. So it was pretty, uh, by today's standards, pretty primitive back then. I'll just throw in a lot less people. <laughs> oh, that too. <laughs> That's even in the last five years, I would say. Yeah, we got lost leaving the parking lot on Beerstadt, if that says anything. Well, well before the boardwalks, well before the good trail, we got horrible stories of those willows when there was a bad trail on Beerstadt. And I don't think we saw anybody the day we did Beerstadt back in the 90s. So <laughs> there's a lot that's changed now. That's like 600 people. Everyone. Oh, man. Hey, yeah, Ant trail yeah. now. I think they have food trucks most of the way up that route now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and the technology back then was non-existent. Uh, we might have been carrying a cell phone, a real basic brick phone or something, but there were the there really wasn't much for GPSs back then. Um, yeah, so we were taking maps and compasses and stuff like that along. Yeah. So if you were to do it again, you had to do all these from scratch. Would you want to do it now with today's technology, weather forecast, Bill Middlebrook in the picture, or do you find yourself nostalgic for the 90s and kind of the purest aspect of it? Which Do you have a preference between the two? Because you guys have done both. I, I think personally, I think we'd go with the technology because we have always been about safety first on every one of our 14er climbs. It's never, it's never been, you know, fun or nostalgic first that's always come second uh we've always taken safety as the highest priority and i think you if, if you read the book you probably got some of that where we had a whole chapter on what it means to turn around on a 14er because it's going to happen to you at some point in time or at least it should happen to you at some point in time in your climbing yeah i'm, I'm kind of the navigator nowadays i've got the phone gps going on and so well map and compass are fun uh I, I love having a GPX route in front of me and I, I love being able to know where we are. And so uh, I figure if I know where we're at, then I can enjoy the sights and enjoy the hiking and everything else and not worry about whether, <laughs> whether we're on the right mountain or on the right route. And so <laughs> it's nice to have that, that, that fail safe with you. Backcountry navigator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do the smartphone offline maps. And a couple of years ago, I got my mm -hmm. Garmin Enrich Garmin mini because when I'm, well, I'll be 69 in August, late, later this month. I'm in the backcountry with snowshoes and snow up to my ears, you know, in January, February, and March by myself. And so it, it, 
you, you got to be safe. And with a tool like the, the InReach Mini, uh, you, you feel a lot safer. You, you feel like you could get help and uh, let somebody know where you're at. And so that the technology, uh, it can be a crutch and cause you to be careless, but it, avoid, trying to avoid that, it, it's a powerful tool when you need it. Mm-hmm. And you've done several in the winter, right? End of the book, you talk about some of the winter routes you've done. Did you do, what route did you do on Yale? We did mostly standard route. Uh, you can follow the trail up the tree line. And after tree line, it's kind of a crapshoot. So we kind of picked our own route above tree line. But it was, it was largely the standard route for the most part on Yale. In the, even in the winter? Yeah. That, that main slope that you get up to the summit ridge um, is not avi prone from what we were able to see. So we, we felt very safe on it. Uh, in fact, I think Yale gets pretty wind blown there on that south side. So... Uh, we felt pretty good on that route. Uh, the worst part of it was just in the trees. Uh, it, we'd catch, you know, waist-high drifts and get stuck post-holing pretty horribly. <laughs> but uh, above tree line, I remember it was always pretty wind-blown and never, uh, we never felt like there was an avalanche concern on Yale. Well, on, on all the winter ascents, the, the standard trails obliterated. You, you, you can't follow it. Well, way down low in the trees for a while but as you get higher in the trees and then get above tree line there's just no way you're going to see the standard trail so you you got to do some decent navigation and route finding and hope you don't uh climb climb off a cliff or something (laughs) (laughs) because sean and i did we did yale in january but i think we did a different trail we did the avalanche gulch trail east ridge east ridge yeah that's a fun route I've done the East Ridge yeah. in summer. There's, it's a, that's a nice approach. Yeah. So what does, what's Christmas look like? Do you sit down, like, do you used to sit down and figure out what your week was going to look like? When, when do you decide to plan? Is it over Thanksgiving? And how does that work, the, the debate? Who gets to decide which mountain you're doing when you're traveling from central time zones? Well, for David and I, it's really simple. Mark does all of the analysis <laughs> and all the homework and all the planning. And, and we go along for the hike, so. <laughs> well, that kind of evolved over time, though, because in the 90s, you know, and David and I are still in our early teens, you did all the planning and the route finding. But yeah, at some point it switched and and I was the obsessive one. And I, I, somewhere in this, I think somewhere in the spring, we'd start to figure out, okay, we've got a week. What do we want to do this year? And how many can we do this year? And how many days in a row can you go out? You know, three in a row, two in a row. And uh, so it evolved over time, but yeah, the, those years in the late 2000s, it was like, hey, let's try to get five in this year. <laughs> and, but there was also like, we got to spend some time with the family too. And uh, we got to sneak a few other things in because it is vacation too. So it was a, a major balancing act. Okay. I was just going to say climbing with family, um, you know, I, I've never done a serious peak with a family member. You know, and certainly not a son. My son's only uh, just over a year old. Are are there times where you think, like, you know, when you're on Capitol or Pyramid, are there times where you think, like, man, what have I got my sons into, like, <laughs> or or what have I got my father into, for that matter? Like, have you do you ever have these thoughts that enter your head? You mean a panic attack? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the early days. I- I was always concerned about an eight and a 10 year old and, and, you know, doing something stupid and having to call mother and say, one of your boys, well, I injured one of your boys, you know, so, (laughs) but you you are concerned. And more recently, some of the, well, Mark's a bunch of his kids have been doing 14 ers and your, your 15 year old has done how many now? He's done 11. And when we did Harvard, when he and I were coming off the summit area, he and we, we got into some of the interesting rock and I'd, I'd almost have called it like class three. And it was the first time I'd seen him rock scramble. And so, yeah, there's that moment when you see your kid, like not just on trail, but actually hands on rocks. And, and it was interesting because I watched him do it and I'm thinking, oh my, oh my. But as he was doing it, I'm thinking he can do this. And so there's also this moment of confidence and moment of pride and, uh, so there, 
I, I'd call it instinct. You know, you're kind of scared at first as you see your kids do this, but when you see them do it well, you realize, okay, this is fun. We can do this together. So uh, it's, a, it's a learning experience, though. I'll answer that question from the, the perspective of the kid to the dad. Uh, you know, in the book, I think every story we have of somebody getting hurt or nearly getting hurt, <laughs> probably dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we're going up, uh, what, Brokenham Pass, and there's a snowfield. You know, it's real skinny. You got to get up into that little area. And he was going over a snowfield. Mark and I were already above him. And he slips or trips on his crampon or something and starts sliding down the snowfield. And, you know, thank God we'd, we'd done the training for self-arrest, and he did it, uh, thankfully. Uh, there was another story in the book from Castle Peak where he was on a, what do we say, it was like a, a VW bug-sized boulder. And the boulder literally just started sliding down the mountain. And uh. maybe, you know, 10, 15 feet down the mountain. Well, by the time we got down there, he's got an open gash on his leg with blood dripping out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was little times like that where you kind of look at each other and like, oh, man. <laughs> well, moral of the story, it shifted from him worrying about us as young yeah. kids to us worrying about him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, and for the record, I'm 29 years older than Mark. And I'm 33 years older than David. <laughs> and I'm constantly reminding them, I hope you boys are doing this when you're 62 or 65 or 69 years old. So, Amen. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. And there was never a moment where we weren't helping each other out, you know, talking about here's a good hold, here's a good foothold, handhold. Um, you know, making an easier route for, you know, especially in the later years going downhill for a 69 year old going downhill, it ain't easy on the knees. Mm -hmm. And so whatever we could do to make it, you know, better for him, um, we tried to do that. And we were always looking out for each other, which was great. That was one of the great parts of climbing together was it, it wasn't about getting to the top. It was about making sure all of us did it safely. And that was, that was, a, that was a fun part of it. Mm -hmm. So, Denny, I'm curious, at, at 69 years old, being able to hike 14ers doesn't happen by accident. I'm sure you have to make a conscientious effort to um, invest in your health and training to be able to do that. Do you have any specific things that you've done to keep your health in tip-top shape to be able to do that at 69 years old? Well, <laughs> I guess we're looking at it. In the background, there's a treadmill. And a, is that an elliptical or a stationary bike? Capital it's, a, it's, it's an upright stationary, so... <laughs> yeah, I I do. I used to run every day or four or five days a week. And then about three or four years ago, my knees said, that's enough. And my orthopedic surgeon said, I'm not doing any more surgery on your knees. <laughs> so, but I do a lot of upright bike, treadmill with steep incline. Uh, I bike outdoors. Well, and then I'm outdoors a lot. I'm, I'm snowshoeing. I did, what, 15 miles on Colorado Trail the other day. Um, I, I'm just pretty really active. So it, you, you really do need to be active. Otherwise, when you're 69 years old, you, you, yeah, you're, you're going to be lucky to be able to get up and walk around. So, uh, and I hope to keep doing it. I'm, I've gotten slower. So, you know, on the, yeah, Mark's shaking his head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Mark, careful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I used to easily do a, a mile an hour and a thousand feet an hour on a steep slope, you know, like if you're going up Yale or something like that. Well, now I'm more like uh, eight-tenths of a mile and 800 feet an hour kind of thing. So, you know, you get, you get slower, but you, you still – you, you work at the fitness in order to be able to do this with your kids and, and now with, with my grandkids, yeah. I think at 69, you're actually faster on the way uphill because you still got good cardio and you got good body. It's just the old knees on the downhill that really hurt at that age. Yeah, a friend of mine calls it vitamin I, but I take a, nice, <laughs> I, I take a good bottle of ibuprofen along. And and every four hours, I, I'll take a couple because it, it makes a big difference in terms of inflammation in your knees. 
Climber's um, candy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Mark Omasic that said in his book, the guy from Halfway to Heaven said, when he got to the one summit, he celebrate he celebrates with macho grunts and ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's true and it works. Yeah. So do you guys as a family have any new shared goals now? Are you on to the centennials as a family? And if not, what are your individual goals? What are you guys doing now? Our family goals right now are to have fun and get the kids, like our kids, going on things. So uh, we, you know, this year, like I said, we, we did one 14er. My son came, but with the rest of the family, it was just go fishing, go kayaking, have fun. Uh, David and I, though, we, we've done a couple centennials. I, I don't know if we'd be serious about doing them all. And, uh, but he and I have just been taking on other adventures. We did Rim to Rim to Rim on the Grand Canyon a couple years ago. Oh. Uh, this September, we're going to do the Teton Crest Trail. So he and I are finding adventures to kind of test our limits a little bit. But I don't know if we have a checklist anymore. It's just what, what would sound like fun? What, what would be a good outdoor adventure that we could do together and enjoy it and have a nice challenge? So we're, we're still loving the outdoors, that's for sure. That's awesome. We've talked about some big climbs still. Uh, Whitney's on the list out in California. Uh, we've even talked about Kilimanjaro if we had the time and money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean just did Rainier last week. Okay. That looks like fun too. How is Rainier? Yeah, I would, I would say Rainier is definitely one you should do. The, the glaciated peaks, that's uh, something totally different from what I'm used to. So it got me out of my comfort zone and was, was really interesting. I mean, the summit of Rainier is kind of a letdown because it's just this big, vast crater. Uh, but the, the crevasses are just amazing. Like, I could, I could look down those crevasses forever. They were they are almost mesmerize me, mesmerizing when you look down those. So. Yeah, I, I read they're a little more dangerous this year because <laughs> it's been a little warmer and they've opened up. And yeah, yeah. But yeah, Kilimanjaro, I think, would be an awesome brother's trip. And the nice thing about Kilimanjaro is you can, you know, it's, you don't have to do it when you're young. I think, you know, there's people, I think, on 14ers.com I saw not too long ago that were, like, close to 70 who did it and had no problem. So that's kind of nice. You can kind of put it on the back of your bucket list when you get money and time. So Sounds good. Our, our life has become a little more complicated because – Mark and David each have four kids. Mm -hmm. And so Mark has three boys and a little girl and David has three boys and a little girl. And so we, we really have to do things where we can engage those kids. So like recently we took seven of the eight backpacking for a night up at the uh, Harvard lakes, you know, just above, uh, above where, where I live. And you, you, there's more family responsibility now than what we used to have. So we, we need to mix things in. Shoot, if you guys have any more kids, you'll be pushing the wilderness limit size. Of group size. <laughs> <laughs> <Group> size. <laughs> That's for sure. Do the kids seem to pick up the generational stoke for climbing as well? Is that something you guys are seeing in your kids? That's a fun question. I, I would say yes and no. My oldest, uh, and he does take a lot after me, uh, he seems to be getting the bug. He seems to be very into it. Uh, my other two, the, the jury is out. They've done a couple, but uh, the interest is, uh, we're not sure yet. So, uh, and honestly, I, I, even with David and I, I don't think it was until we hit our 20s that we were really like, hey, this is awesome, we're into it. Totally. I think the first couple years, it was like, this is fun, but we weren't like chomping at the bit to go back to it. Uh, uh, so, the jury's still out. Yeah, my kids are eight, six, four, and two, so they're pretty young. Uh, I mean, I started at eight, and when we were out in Colorado a couple weeks ago, I asked my eight-year-old, I said, hey, you want to go hike Harvard with – or not, we weren't going to do Harvard. We were going to do an easier one, Huron or uh, Quandary or something. But, um, you know, he, he basically said, no, I want to stay and play with my cousins. And I said, I'm not going to push you. I mean, you don't want to bring one of your kids up there if they don't want to do it. Absolutely. And so, yeah. So, yeah, none of mine have made it up a 14-er yet. Well, there's still a lot of time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's wisdom in that. Don't push them. Don't make them go, but yet entice them to. I certainly wanted my kids, even if it's not a 14-er, at least something outside. You know, get them off the screens, get them doing something. And, uh, you know, 
my, my rule with them is you're going to go outside. Now, whether you do something big and like a mountain or whether we go for a walk in the park, you know, that might be up to you, but uh, it's, it's fun to at least get them outside. And if they want to do more, you know, all the better. But. I find it such a struggle because, so my stepkids hate hiking. They like, like, hate it, but they love kayaking and canoeing. So it's like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go kayaking. <laughs> and I'm hoping that my, my, uh, birth son that he, he gets the hiking bug because I really need to have a hiking partner some somewhere in the family. Yeah. How do you get someone with the sufferfest bug? <laughs> That's our term for those miserable days where you do 35 miles and the weekend yeah. on the Wilson group. And then there's this points around long when you're really low on energy and mental fortitude <laughs> and then kind of yeah. push through. Just got to let him hang out with Sean. <laughs> but the Sufferfest, so looking back on them, they, they have such fond memories of them, even though at the time they're horrible experiences. Yeah. Kids definitely don't understand Sufferfest. You got to like entice them what, with like wildflowers and marmots and candy. And like, I think that's how we coax mine up to the top of a few. And so. I was just going to say, I feel like wives are maybe the same way. Candy, <laughs> marmots, wildflowers. That sounds, that sounds very similar to my, hey, James, my bait the, as well. It wasn't Skittles. What was the candy that you got? Jason's <laughs> like, a Sour Patch Kid. Sour Patch. Right That's here. the trail of Sour yeah. Patch Kids when we're close to the summit. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, David, David's very fortunate. He has a wife who would say, if you can do it, I can do it. And so she followed him up here on a number of years ago. Or uh, Yale? Yale, Yale. Yale, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but there was another thing to that. Wasn't this something where you said, oh, it's only like, what, four or five miles, and it really turned out to be eight or nine? So there, there might have been a bit of cheating there in terms of how far the hike was, right? <laughs> you just tell them it's one of the easier 14ers. That's what you get away with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The list of easy 14ers, huh? <laughs> <laughs> kind of a short list. <laughs> so what about faith in the, in the 14ers? I'm, I'm always amazed. You know, we have a, a few friends that we hike with who are agnostic slash atheists. And I'm always amazed that people can be, a, you know, a, have such appreciation of the Alpine and the mountains and the beauty that's up there. And not have a faith life, and I'm I'm just curious, like how you approach that, especially as a family, like what your kind of faith approach to the 14er climbs were. It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. We 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 take our faith very seriously. We're a Lutheran family, all of us, and uh, we. I remember times uh, even backpacking in the tent. I mean, we we did our own little church service and it helps when you got a pastor along with you <laughs> at the time Mark, he, he's still a pastor, but, and so we do our own church services. Um, we prayed before. I think all of you probably do a lot of praying when you're crossing the knife edge on Capitol, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, Mark, uh, go ahead and share your feelings. I, on that. I think to Sean's point, you, it is hard to look at the mountains and not think like you're looking at the, the fingerprints or the handiwork of God. And so that, that's certainly been a perspective we've carried with us into the mountains. Uh, it's hard to look at a lot of that beauty and that grandeur and the variety of life, the wonders that are out there and not think that a creator kind of had a hand in this. And I, I'd have a hard time looking at all that and saying it was by accident and chance. So yeah, for us, it was I, part of the experience to say, not only are we having fun as a family, we're having fun doing outdoor activity, but uh, this is beautiful creation around us. And, uh, and it sure makes you have a love for it and uh, a love to take care of it and a love to preserve it and keep it and, and to enjoy it and give thanks for it. So, yeah. How many uh, names of the 14ers got into sermons? <laughs> it has been a sermon illustration every once in a while. My, 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 the people I know here are well aware of the fact that I like the mountains and the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. So. I'll, be, I'll bet the people in Mark's congregation have heard at least twenty mountain stories. Okay, yeah. so yeah. That was my next question. What's the stories that you tell over and over? That your wife's like, I've heard the story. I know the punchline. I know what happened. <laughs> certain those stories you keep on telling over and over. Well, the, the lesson I've learned with my wife is there are certain stories that she doesn't want to know. Uh, you know, 
what you don't do is show your wife uh, pictures of the knife edge. Or we actually have the we have video of uh, my father doing this self arrest on Broken Hand Peak, and I I can still hear my brother's voice in my ear saying self arrest, self arrest, and we've got video of that. And that's that's one of those videos you just don't go home and share. And so we've learned. Uh, there's almost a don't ask, don't tell policy to certain things in the mountains. I, I don't want to know how dangerous it was. I'm just glad you came home. And <laughs> well, I, so think, that, I think David said, better not show mom that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. there's, some, there's some really fun things that we did. You know, we, like I said, we tried to be really safe on everything. And so we repelled down the hourglass a little there. Um, we did some uh, ropes on the chimney of North Maroon things like that were just really fun and they're fun to talk about and share with people. Um, but I think we got a really good story from Uncompagre back in uh, what, 1990 something uh, before cell phones on a rescue. This is a true 1990s story. <laughs> uh, Dad, you want to share that or you want me to? Well, in a nutshell, yeah, we were on the, the ridge probably 13,000 foot approaching the, the final climb. And a, a kid came running up a gully and said, well, I, w I was leading a group and we were trying a different route. And I had a girl in my group fall in the steep gully and she tumbled a ways and got pretty banged up. And the real short version of the story is my brother, Bob, who got us into all this, is a ham radio operator. He got onto his ham up in the saddle at 13,000, got on the ham radio operator, hit somebody over in Slumgullion Pass who, huh. had, who was another ham radio operator, got on the phone, called the Hancock County Sheriff. He talked Sheriff. to a trucker. It was a, a semi-trucker. Okay. Well, it was two or three deep. But we ended up having a sheriff's deputy come up the trail on a dirt bike and ended up coordinating a helicopter rescue. Um, helicopter came out of Montrose and landed down in a in a flat area, of course, and 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 hauled a, a young lady out of there to to the hospital. So that the only technology we had was a ham radio in that situation. Yeah. Wow. He had an antenna sticking out of his backpack, and that's how the the guy knew. This, this, he might have something for us to help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite part, the big antennas coming out of the backpack. You don't really see that anymore. A, no Garmin inReach, no cell phones, and thank God for the ham radio, and uh, that got you through. <laughs> you guys were all about safety from the very beginning. That's, that's called preparation. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, going was... back to the hourglass, would you repel it again? Because you kind of discussed that in the book, debating – because you, you spend more time setting up your anchor in the shooting gallery than you save time actually safely repelling. So when we did Little Bear, uh, the guy who wrote the, the um, um, not the forward, but the, yeah, it was the day on the forward to our book, uh, Pastor Jim Latch, he was with us. He was a friend that, that did several 14ers with us. And uh, he ended up just hiking down. Of course, it was a lot faster through the, the hourglass than doing the repel, but I would still do the rappel simply because when those rocks start bouncing down the hourglass, you can move a whole lot quicker on rappel than you can off rappel. And we did. We had some rocks that came down and you just swing side to side. And you can, I mean, you can't predict where every rock is going to go, but you kind of can see where it's heading. And it's a whole lot safer and easier to get out of the way of those rocks. Uh, it did take a lot of time, and it's one of those things you've got to be looking at the weather when you're, when you're setting up a rappel and say, look, is it going to be safer for me to hike down this quicker, get out of the weather, or do we have bluebird sky and i got time to set up a rappel? And, of course, you got to check the anchors, too, which uh, that can get a little sketchy on Little Bear. Well, it's not like the rock up there regenerates. Like 15 years ago, there were more anchors than there were this year because the rock just keeps shedding and so when we did it we had a really hard time finding anywhere to anchor and so mm -hmm. we just spent forever just fiddle farting in the hourglass trying to find a good anchor set up a redundant anchor and then by the time we did a half hour later we're about to repel 
and there's a marmot chewing on the webbing of our anchor. And we're like, are you kidding? Like <laughs> all this time in here and this marmot's about to thwart our efforts. So like we, not only are there not anchors in there, but then the marmots come chew on them. And we just, if I had to repeat it, I would probably not repel. I don't know. Everybody's kind of on one side of the fence or the other on that. It's a good debate. I, I can see both sides and uh, yeah, the, the extra time you spend is certainly a factor um, I, I think it was more fun to repel in a sense, if you're willing to put in the time to dangle out there, you know, that part was enjoyable, but, uh, I, I guess I can see why people curse the marmots out. I love those little guys, but when they chew up your gear, I can see why they get cursed out all the time. <laughs> the repelling makes for better pictures. That is unquestionable. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious from your guys' perspective, Taylor and I do this thing at dinner where we reflect on our day and we talk about our best and our worst. It's kind of a cheesy little thing that we do. And looking back at your 14er journey, I'd love to hear from each of you um, just kind of a, a quick snippet or Reader's Digest version of the best and worst, a highlight and a low light of, of each of your kind of perspective journeys on the 14ers. Well, you know, the best, the best side of it is the exhilaration when you make it to the top and both mentally and physically have, have accomplished something that's pretty difficult and a lot of people can't do. Um, and that's a result of a lot of planning and effort and all that good stuff. Uh, on the downside, the, the anxiety for me just kind of eats, eats you alive. You know, like, well, I'll give you an example. The, the year that we didn't make it up Crestone Peak, there was a, a year full of anxiety then of, darn it all, you know, I didn't make it up Crestone Peak. And so now we're planning for a whole year, we're going to go back and we're going to get Crestone Peak. And it's just a lot of anxiety about in planning and in waiting and, well, lying awake in, in backpacking <laughs> tents and sleeping <laughs> at 12,000 feet overnight, you guys know, it. there's a lot of sort of sleepless nights uh, that, that are involved, and yeah, it's a lot of anxiety, short-term and long-term, because you want to go back, and you want to, you know, you want to accomplish that peak, yeah, you want to go back and get Crestone Peak, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the negative, I hate to be redundant, but Crestone Peak was it, that was the most demoralizing uh, morale just was killed you know you, you get all the way up in the red gully you're halfway up and you hit a huge snow field and we had no snow experience at that point in time and I felt devastated uh, turning around that high up that far in it just it eats you it really does but um, I'm one of those, those class three, class four junkies. And so the other two kind of had to hold me back. Like, no, we ain't doing this. And I thank them for that today because I probably, if I was alone, I probably would have done it and who knows, but, um, you know, you look back on it and you say, that was the right decision. We, we made the right decision to turn around at that point, even though it killed us. Um, but on the positive side, you know, <laughs> you just can't dismiss uh, capital peak. It, it it was our last 14 er and we had hyped it up so much amongst the three of us over 24 years, way more than it ever needed to be hyped up. And we kind of made it this uh, like heavenly place that is so dangerous that <laughs> we didn't know how we were ever going to be able to do it. And, you know, once we got up there, it, it turned out to be, uh, I'm not going to say it turned out to be easy, but it, it turned out to be that we were prepared, you know, 53 14ers and we had the skills necessary to do it. And by the time we got past the knife edge and up the side of Capitol, it, it was so exhilarating just to think about how we had all done this together for 24 years. And here we were enjoying our last one as Capitol Peak. And it wasn't supposed to be our last one. We were going to do Evans and have our family drive up and throw a party for us. But you can read about that in the book due to weather that kind of changed things up. And I, I, we couldn't have planned it any better way to end on Capitol. It, it just really made for a great ending to the 14ers. So did you guys celebrate when you were on the summit or once you were off of K2 on the return? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a funny one because we – 
we had a very, very, very tiny celebration on the summit, but as you probably well know, yeah, summit, you're only half done. So we were very hesitant to, you know, think too much of the summit. And the funny thing about that story is it started to rain. Uh, I think we were descending down to the lake. It starts to rain and it was just like the heavens opened and we, we didn't celebrate till we got back to the house that day because uh, we, we were mad rushing to tear tents down. It, we were just drenched. And then you're walking through all the cow crap on the way out. And so the, the yeah, it was like not till we got back to the house. I was like, thank you. <laughs> now we're good. So, yeah, so summits, summits are always iffy for celebrating because you know how it is. It's like you want to get down too. And that's a mountain that has your highest attention going down. So that one was uh, wait till you get home to celebrate. I found that one so mentally taxing. Even when I got back to camp, we didn't really have the mental bandwidth to high five and celebrate. It wasn't until I was like halfway into the drive on the way home that I'm like, holy cow, we just did capital. Like, let's stop and have a dinner and some beer. That's awesome. Like, I didn't realize it until we were done with it because you're mentally just so taxed. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were invested in that one for months just to prepare reading trip, just to know the steps of the road, which was good. Cause I think as David pointed out, we enjoyed it from the knife at from K2 up. We enjoyed it cause we, we felt prepared. We knew what we were doing and it was fun. Yeah. It was scary. It had your attention, but it was fun cause we were so invested mentally, but uh, you're right. It was taxing too. You're just, you really couldn't settle down until you're way off of it and done. <laughs> So, yeah. I think the amazing, uh, the amazing thing about Capital is those, those memories just always seem fresh in my mind when I go back to them. Like a lot of the other ones, it's like, you know, I don't, I don't really remember too much about Albert or other than being cold up there. I don't remember too much about, uh, you know, maybe uh, some of the other Sawatch ones that aren't all that thrilling. But boy, I can I can almost remember every single move <laughs> across that knife edge. Like I can remember how the rock felt, what you know, what foothold I had. I think it's just such a memorable climb. So that's so cool to finish on, and especially with your father. Like how great is that to be standing on that summit with your dad? That's amazing. Hats off. Yeah, that that was fun. We we got video of that summit too, and I think to this day it was something David had said. You know, that's one we're going to keep to ourselves and just cherish and. Uh, yeah, it was definitely something to to just finally do that together. That culmination feeling that everybody could share. So there might have been a tear or two shed on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mark, I don't think we've heard your best and worst yet. I think you're up. Yeah. So my worst. So I'll contrast. My worst was not 2008 on Crestone. Uh, yeah, it was a bummer to turn around, but I felt like that was the right move. So it felt natural to turn around and do that. My worst was in 04 on Blanca of all peaks. We had done Little Bear the day before and, and we, had, we had done it. We felt good about it. And then the next day, my, I think my nerves were so frayed from Little Bear that I'm up Blanca and I'm thinking, oh, this should be easy. This should be nothing. And it was such a challenge for me. And, and that was a year I was out of shape. I was, that was probably one of my worst years for being in shape. And that mountain was the first one where I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore because I didn't feel good. I was just frayed and I was on the verge of thinking I'm done. And thankfully I didn't quit. You know, I came back the next year and I was probably in better shape. And well, and honestly, since then I've always been challenging myself to be in shape, but that was one of those years where it was like, I don't feel good. I'm not having as much fun as I think as I should. And so that, that was the low point. Thankfully it was all up from there. And uh, in the high point, yeah, capital and, and finishing and that culmination was pretty cool. Um, my, my favorite summit, though, was Wetterhorn. That was so beautiful. Just the hike up was beautiful. The columbines were beautiful. The, it was fun, that summit approach. It was just everything about it was fun. So I, just to share a different one, Wetterhorn was so much fun, so beautiful, just enjoyable from trailhead to finish and so yeah i for anyone who's not done wetterhorn oh it's fun it's good <laughs> so that's our favorite taylor and i nice yeah, it's beautiful yeah elevator elevator going up boy, yes. boy. Yeah. and yeah. and the view from the summit with all i mean it's just so beautiful it has plenty of combines for the wives too <laughs> <laughs> 
if I can throw one more positive and negative in there. Um, so North Maroon, in the book, we, we write a little bit about this because it was one we did twice, uh, Mark and I. Um, you know, the, the first time we did it, it was, you get to that second gully and you're like, holy crap, this is going to be difficult. And that first time we did it is where uh, dad, dad turned around at that point, which, um, which is difficult. It's hard. You know, we, we did all these together for the most part. And he told Mark and I, he said, no, I want you guys to go and do it. And so we did, but coming back that last year, so Mark and I had Capital and Evans and dad had Capital Evans and North Maroon. And we said, you know what? We're gonna knock this out, all of us again. And that's what we did. We hiked right back up North Maroon and he was in great shape that year and just knocked it out, uh, which that was, that was really exhilarating just to see my dad uh, on a peak that he had turned around on a couple of years before, just get up there and knock it out with no problem at all. Uh, that's, that's awesome. That's a mental fight, uh, on North Maroon. If, if you've never done North Maroon before, you'll, when you see that second goalie, you'll, you'll realize how much of a mental game it is. That's a no crap moment for sure. <laughs> yeah. That was what we, well, I would say my watershed moment. Sean and I did, uh, snow mass from snow mass trailhead camped and then went over buckskin camped again, right by the boulder, right by the boulder field. Uh, before you under the first gully there in North Maroon, we knocked out off Snowmass and North Maroon in the same trip. And then that was the, that, when I got down safely to Crater Lake. That was like I knew I could do the rest of the. I could do the pyramids mm -hmm. and the Wilson groups and the and the other the other ones. So that was my kind of like watershed. What we call our watershed moment. Love that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great confidence builder when you're like, all right, we could do this. Yeah, yeah. It's so you know, funny because you ask ten people what the what their scariest fourteen er was, and you seem to get ten different answers. Like, I always, I thought North Maroon was really scary when I did it the first time, and then like Stifler was like, "Yeah, that was no problem. It was super, you know, straightforward. No problem. It was fun." So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we did. Um, I almost got off off route. Remember, you put that your yellow puffy in that one gully because I think the danger is dropping that gully down too far and getting off route. And we were arguing about the Broncos and Steelers and got into a good conversation with Pat. And we were below our yellow puffy until we turned around and realized, oh, man, <laughs> we're descending yeah. too far. Yeah. Do you guys have any closing thoughts or parting wisdom for any of our listeners that are trying to finish the 14ers with their families? Yeah, I'll just say we really do encourage people to climb with their families because – you know, we, when we listen to the podcast with Mark Obmasek, you know, it's, it's tough when you're trying to find a partner to go on every single climb. And, you know, the three of us talked about that podcast and it was like, man, we were really happy to have each other, to just be able to go and do them together. And it was never a question of who we're going to hike with. <laughs> and so um, I, I just encourage everybody, get out and do it with your family, do it with your friends, um, hike with somebody. It's safer. It's fun. Um, and get, yeah, get your kids interested. Yeah. Mark, do you charge uh, guiding fees like Sean tries to do with us? <laughs> I should right now. Yeah. I, I do all the navigation prep work, but I think once we're on the trail, especially in the, the scrambling areas, then David takes over. He's the route finder spotting the right routes through all the, the mess. And so we, we, uh, we all, it's funny, we kind of all had our niche, our part as the years went on. And so it was, I guess you'd say a well-oiled machine after doing so many together. We kind of each had our niche and our, our, our part to play. So that, that part was fun. But I haven't charged any guiding fees yet. No, <laughs> maybe with my kids. I'll charge my kids. That's what we'll do. <laughs> my role is significant. I follow these two guys and and drink lots of Gatorade and stuff down goos to keep up with them. So. <laughs> the hype man. Yeah. I think it's a great point. Even Scott Nash, the 14 year disaster author, writes in his book about the importance of having a partner that is your same pace. Because mm -hmm. if, you, if you're not going the same pace, it's exhausting for the person to go too fast and catch up. And it's, it's frustrating for the person who's behind to always be trying to catch up. And so I love the family dynamic, the share the loads, uh, the, who draws the straw and who carries the ropes up uh, Como Road is, uh, I think, an interesting uh, debate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Como Road. Yeah. 
bad memories on that road. That's just no fun. <laughs> very hot. Very hot. Yeah. Well, thank you guys all so much for your time tuning in from different parts of the country. It was awesome chatting with you, and we hope to stay in touch. Sounds great. Right, yeah. So thank nice you. to meet all of you. Good to meet you. Thank all right, you. See you, everyone. Yeah, see, see you out there. Good.